0: I recently had a meeting in Los Angeles with some people from, the, from UCLA, and they came to where I work at Refuge Recovery Centers, and they were doing a study and a survey on um, the role of faith with, uh, the, as a screening process, uh, the role of faith in people who uh, have substance abuse and trying to determine if, uh, people with substance abuse or people who were seeking mental health services uh, if faith was going to be an important screening tool. And so these uh, three women, these researchers came over to speak to me and Noah about faith. And um, I looked at their sheet of paper and I immediately got this uh, strange sense of faith and I was like, "Oh, you mean religion or faith? You mean you must mean God?" Or, uh, and so we had this long conversation about what faith looks like from a Buddhist perspective, and actually, what faith looks like from a Buddhist perspective, and the way that faith, the role of faith in the meditation process that we're in, uh, the idea that we're trying to bring into possibility is to some degree on the verge of extinction. In fact, faith from a Buddhist perspective and from the perspective of the practice that we've been doing is almost exactly the opposite of the way that we, uh, the way that culturally that we think of faith. And so this evening I want to talk about the faith that it takes, the faith that is required to let go. So the faith to let go. And to some degree I experience this as the the releasing of the heart. The heart's release. The letting go of the clinging and the tightness and and the resistance that we feel emotionally in our heart. And so when we start to look at the practice that we're engaged in, another flip that we might want to switch or another switch that we might want to flip is actually the practice and really the Dharma is a process of subtraction, not addition. And that sometimes when we come from busy lives where we have so many things going on and we're stressed out and we have anxiety and depression and all of these terms that we throw around nowadays... That we think, oh, now i got to add meditation. Now I have to add something to the ready-to-fall-over Jenga pile of my life. If I just add one more thing on top of it, I'm going to collapse. Feeling that often can arise. But when we start to look at our experience and we start to sit in the mindfulness practices, we start to see actually we're not trying to add anything. We're actually trying to subtract a whole bunch of stuff. You know, the just the thinking of the mind. What what type of thinking? The judgment, I can let that one go. The planning, let that go. The place, the thing to have, the thing to be. Let that go. And it feels like at the beginning of a retreat, I know for me, it's just like, I feel like I'm just running around trying to shut off all these switches that keep getting turned back on. I start to subtract. I start to subtract. I start to see what happens when I do that. And there starts to be more space in my experience. And I start to feel more at ease. And I start to feel less busy, and less hectic, and less anxious. And it takes uh, some degree of faith or confidence to actually do that. It takes some kind of faith or confidence to uh, motivate us to say, no, "No, let that go." And then, at the beginning of the mindfulness practices, at the right at the beginning of the Satipatthana, which is the practices we've been working on all week, there's some refrains that show up in the teachings where there's certain. A concepts that the Buddha is continuing to repeat over and over again. It's called a refrain. It something that reappears over and over. And one of my uh, favorite ones, and one of the ones that I find to be very striking, is that one of the things that he asks us to do, even before we sit down, is he says, put aside your, your greed and hatred for the world. Put aside your desire and discontent for the world. Put aside your craving and aversion for the world. Put that aside. Don't, don't worry about your plans and your memories and your should-have-dones and the wish i hadn'ts and the gonna-dos and the better-dos and all of that activity in the mind that's telling you to do something. Better do this, better do that. Shouldn't have done this, shouldn't have done that. On and on and on just put that aside he actually says that even before on the first day when we said coming into an empty room and sitting quietly and breathing in and knowing that you're breathing in even before that put aside your preoccupation with your place and for many of us I think that takes a tremendous amount of confidence takes a tremendous amount of faith or trust that, that actually that to do that's a, a good idea. So what is this word or this concept, this idea of faith? I think for most of us, when I hear the word faith, I automatically think belief. So I have a belief system and I have faith in my belief system and I place emphasis on externalizing actually salvation. And so there's a a study called soteriology which is the study of salvation and all religions have some sort of soteriology to them where they're trying to figure out how one becomes liberated. And Everything, mostly everything but Buddhism externalizes the salvation and says you need to have faith in this external belief system. And if you follow that belief system, that dogma, it will lead you to heaven or to whatever the, the belief system is. But when we look at what faith is from the Buddhist perspective, it's really quite opposite. It's really quite different. It's actually considered to be a mental factor, a mental faculty. It's a, it's a force in the mind. It's a possibility in the mind. It's something that's there for us to unlock or to open or to turn towards. And I think really for most of us, and I think in a very pragmatic way, it's not that important that you know what faith is, but it's much more important that you know when it's present. That you know when I have faith in my mind. When I have confidence in my mind. And to know that this is uh, considered in the Buddhist psychology a beautiful mind state. It's a beautiful state of mind. It's a beautiful emotion. And that it's a possibility for us to have and so how do we begin to unlock this or how do we begin to start to see that this is a good thing? And so when we, just, when we sit in a room like this and we start to consider some of these ideas, something brought you here. You know. So this is not something new. This is something that you have had access to in the past. Something in you, something in your mind, something in your awareness, in your heart or emotion experience Thought, okay, this something maybe about doing a practice or doing a retreat or doing some meditation. I feel like maybe it will do something for me. I have some degree of faith or confidence that this will be worthy. This will be a worthwhile endeavor. In fact, one could say quite accurately that everything that you have ever done in your life that was worthwhile, the only reason you did it probably was because you had some faith or confidence that you could. So it's just very much the beginning of entering into some kind of possibility of an experience that could be had. And also something about the practice is that there's got to be some degree of confidence. This is something that's important to you. There's an important, meaningful uh, something that has to do with some degree of confidence. And there's also got to be some sense of hope or confidence that there's a hope that it's going somewhere. It's going to do something. It's going to have an affect on the quality of my life. And so some of the stuff that I've pulled out of some of the uh, Buddhist literature that I've been studying over the years defines faith as this. It says faith, confidence, or trust. So you could use any of these words would actually work. It is important to understand that this quality of faith is strongly related to wisdom and mindfulness and is considered in the Pali formulas as a support factor for the whole meditative path. So in the early structure, the early Buddhist teachings, this role, the possibility of faith, is really uh, meant to be a huge companion all the way down the meditative path. So it's no small, small thing. It is not a belief in a dogma, but indeed an ability to recognize the dangers of being influenced by the forces of greed, hatred, and delusion within the mind. So there's a confidence and there's a sense of of understanding that there's something about my mind that's maybe a little bit dangerous. And I've seen the suffering that can happen in my mind and I see the dangers of just having a mind that's untrained. And now I'm starting to train it and understand that that it's the greed and the hatred and the delusion forces in my mind that are getting me into the suffering. Equally important is to develop the confidence and the opportunity to overcome these forces in the mind by developing and training the mind. So again, there's a confidence that arises when you say, okay, I'm going to train my mind, and it's going to have a positive impact on the quality of my life and you all to some degree have had this sense had this inclination or you wouldn't be sitting in the room you would have you would have left by now therefore the fact that faith appears at the beginning of the liberation process does not imply that it is a tool to be put aside after application but a quality that is to be cultivated Because it is inherently precious. Because it's inherently precious. So it's just, uh, it's really, I feel like it's more of an emotional quality than just a thing in the mind. And so we start to notice when it's there. We start to notice when it's present. And we start to have the faith that it takes and the confidence that it takes to let go. And to, and to renunciate is the word they use in Buddhism. To to, to renunciate, to, to let go of something, to put it aside. And so we come into a, a retreat like this and we uh, hear the instructions and there's a lot of instructions about putting things aside, right? You see that your mind's wandering, let that go, come back to your breath. You know, it takes some degree of confidence to do that because the mind has got so many the mind is totally convinced that your breath is unnecessary to pay attention to. And so every time, actually, that you follow these instructions that seem at times excruciating, perhaps, you're building this little morsel of, you're having some degree of faith and confidence that this letting go is going to serve me at some point. let go of my thinking let go of my planning let go of my self critical judgmental anger let go of my memories and let go of all the fun stuff right all the ooh i want to think about this and i want to think about that the fun planning and the imagining and sometimes it feels like well what well, what's going to be left if i get rid of all these things to do and to be and to have and to get and so when we start to do this, we start to actually get some degree of confidence and faith and trust that we can do that, and that it's a, it's a better way to go about things. And so when we look at the practice of faith, we have to look at the other side of the coin, which is this practice of renunciation, the practice of actually letting go. And also here it says that Buddhist scholars enable us to consider faith and renunciation not as two separate factors of the Buddhist teachings, but as two closely sides, two closely related manifestations of wisdom. The Buddha often defines wisdom as the capacity to seeing and knowing things just as they are without being influenced by greed, hatred, and delusion as this is the utmost cause of liberation. Here, faith is described as an intuitive understanding of how clinging to experience leads to suffering. And so if we start to develop this wisdom, we start to see actually this letting go that seems so difficult and challenging is actually in my best interest. Right, and you—you you kind of have to. It's almost like chopping wood. It's just like one sit after another, one moment after another. We're letting go, and and uh, from hearing some of you today, you're starting to see uh, a lot of what I've heard today is just—there's actually starting to be all of this space. There's my awareness that's happening, and then there's this thing over here called my mind uh, that I'm seeing it for what it is and what it's doing, and I'm actually. I'm having some space to breathe, I'm having some room to do things differently now. And to some degree you could also say that faith is actually a refuge. Refuge, as I talked about on the first night, this is what we take. We take on some type of refuge when we do the practice. Refuge meaning safety or trust. It also requires a tremendous amount of a sense of confidence that this is going to be a worthy endeavor. And so the renunciation is in the subtracting. It's in the letting go. And so, talking a little bit about what is renunciation. And so the Pali term for renunciation is nekama. And it means not needing anything extra, not being demanding, to experience the benefits of being able to give up that which is extra, to give up what is not necessary in this very life and in this very moment. And often for, I think, people in the Modern world, for a lot of us in the modern culture, renunciation feels um, like we got to give up our shit. Like, I got to give up my stuff. I don't want to give up my stuff. I want my stuff. You know, the Buddhists are going to take away all my stuff. <laughs> I like my stuff. What do I got to give up again? What am I going to get in return? But it's not that at all, actually. And from a meditative perspective, when we're sitting and we're practicing, we're meditating, um, we're trying to experience this attitude of, you know, i don't not needing anything extra right now. Not trying to improve the moment, not trying to add to the experience, not trying to get rid of anything. Renunciation is, is a sort of deep contented, a deep contentment experience with things as they are. Don't need to make that plan. Don't need to do that. Don't need to rehearse that. Don't need to rehab that argument again with that person one more time. Don't need to... How many arguments have you rehad since you've been here? How many events of your life have you redone? How many takes have you had of that one? Take 565, that time I got in a fight with my sister. Next time she wants, and now I'm next time I know what I'm going to say. I hope it happens again so bad, because I have the fucking best thing to say. When they say this, I'm going to say that right over the top, and you're beat. All right. Can you let that go? And so the renunciation is actually the subtraction. It's the letting go of the experience that we don't need to be doing. So we start to uh, chop down and start to undermine and undercut all of these ways in which greed, hatred, and delusion is trying to take me out of the moment, trying to take me out of my life, trying to take me out of my experience. Right, and I notice that when this happens for me, that actually there's usually in those moments where my mind is very activated and the meditation feels like it's not working. And I'm actually trying to use my thoughts to create a pleasant experience. I'm actually trying to generate a better way to be about in this moment because it's boring or painful or tedious. I notice in those moments I don't have any faith, I don't have any confidence in the practice. There's a tremendous lack of confidence in the fact that this practice is going to work, it's going to get me anywhere. And so we experience what the Buddha uh, talks to as the most debilitating mental state, which is that of doubt. The sense of, this doesn't work. This isn't going to work. In fact, this is really ridiculous. And so we oftentimes get into this really uh, devaluing of the experience. And then dismissing, and then again, like I said last night, when the mind gets exaggerated. The mind gets exaggerated often into doubt. And we start to, uh, we think, maybe we think yesterday I had a good day, but oh no, it wasn't that good actually. I didn't really have any good sits yesterday. That forgiveness thing, I don't know, that that was okay. I didn't really forgive myself. I wanted to, but I really didn't. And we actually start to misperceive what has been helpful in the past. And doubt—the hindrance of doubt—makes us feel stuck, and 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 it makes us feel scared. And we have fear, and we have doubt. We become angry about the fear and the doubt. And actually, then we don't actually have the faith or the confidence or the trust to get back to the practice that was working in the first place. And our whole awareness, our whole experience, becomes hijacked by the mental proliferation of the mind. And we start to create a belief system that we start to actually have faith in. It would be so much better if only I really should be here, I really should be this. And we we start to actually participate in the dogmatic belief system that we see in the externalizing of the experience, the opposite of the faith that we're looking for. We create a structure, we create a story, we create a habitat in the mind, and we become so convinced that there's something so much better that could be happening right now, and we have tremendous faith and confidence that it, that were true. And so the faith and the doubt, they kind of counteract each other. Of course, they can never be present at the same time, They can never co-arise. And so in the presence of doubt, in the presence of fear, we're experiencing the absence of the confidence, the absence of the faith. And so how can we work with that experience? How can we get ourselves out of it? And then we have to really look right at actually what it is that we're doing. And again, start the practice of subtracting what's happening while well, I'm thinking all over the room right now? Let's just like let's get my attention out of that. let's just go back to the sound of that bird up there or whatever that little creature is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How many of you have spent a lot of time wondering what that is a gecko. A gecko, thank you. No, I don't have to do that anymore. It's a gecko. <laughs> And so we start to subtract and to subtract and to subtract and to see, what else can I let go of? What else can I let go of? And the very sort of paradoxical reality of the situation is it's such a win-win situation because I find that the more that I actually let go, the more that I start to have faith that I can let go. And then another moment arises where I need to let go, and I have a little bit more faith in that moment that I can let go, so I do. And then I experience the letting go, the switching off, the subtraction, and I start to find some degree of ease. And so the more moments of letting go that occur, the more times I can get myself back into my direct experience. Not only do I, gain my, do I gain strength in my ability to let go, but I also get to see the benefit of what happened the moment after I let go. And the next time I need to let go, I'm going to have just a little bit more confidence that I can do it. and so when we look at the structure of the four noble truths which we've been I've been slowly rolling out week uh, night after night here is this is the truth that you can end suffering the third noble truth that there is an end to suffering and like I said last night when we were all laughing in here that when you experience the moment of the ending of the suffering what usually comes in that is an extremely very tangible sense of confidence and faith of like oh that was a really good thing to do right there and also we've been working with the foundations of mindfulness today and this third foundation of mindfulness is actually the part of the experience where the liberation happens when we really see in a very real way this lens of experience the pushing and the pulling And we liberate our minds from that. We let that go. And we arrive into some experience that's often called Nibbana, which is the experience of the third noble truth, the experience of the end of a a type of suffering that we just were in or we were about to get into. And it's not this big epic. You know, when we think about awakening and ending suffering or nirvana or you know it's gotten to be so mystif- mystified that uh, it's enlightenment now <clears throat> this word enlightenment i see this sometimes in news feeds and articles on buddhism and i cringe slightly when i see the word enlightenment because to me it sounds like heaven and in fact in early buddhism uh the, world, the word there is no enlightenment that's added that was added many 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 years later One could say thousands of years later. It's a very new Buddhist concept, the idea of I'm going to be enlightened, which to me sounds like bliss and pleasant forever for me. Enlightenment. And actually the awakening process and the liberation that we experience in the third noble truth is very ordinary. It's It's actually quite easy to not even notice that it happened. And I would argue that you have seen this moment many, 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 many times since you've been here. You were really, really worked up about something. You were really, really caught up. You were cranking something out in your mind. And something arose in your experience, some level of confidence, some level of maybe I could actually <laughs> let this piece go. And you did. And you went back to something else. You came back to a breath or a sound and... And you felt some degree of ease. And the word Nibbana that we find in the Third Noble Truth, the word for the end of this, is actually an ancient Indian cooking term. And it means to cool down. It's akin to the idea of taking a hot, a hot pot or something off of the hot and putting it over and letting it cool down. It's a sense of a cooling down. I mean, what do we say with, to pe- about people who are nice to be around? We say, oh, that guy's cool. Cool is a very modern English term that we use a lot, but it's actually really quite akin to this third noble truth. It's a sense of being cool. Not hot, not frustrated, not worked up, not activated. But in the midst of a chaos, in the midst of an unpleasant experience, in the midst of something challenging, you're cool with it. You're not suffering about it. So we want to start to look at this. For me, I think it needs a pretty strong reframe as a concept or an idea. And even the Buddha, there's a couple stories in the canon where he talks about faith. Actually, the term Sada uh, Nekama, which is a, in Pali, it's considered a dyad. So sometimes there are certain things that, when you look at the Pali language, there are certain structures that show up over and over and over again. And one of them is this dyad, Sada Nekama, which is faith renunciation, which is literally faith letting go, faith letting go, faith letting go that you actually have to have faith to let go, and if you let go, you'll have more faith to let go, and if you let go, you'll have more faith. It's just kind of, it's an exponential kind of thing. And then you start to be able to really unhook from things in really quite a nice way. And there's a very specific story in the canon where the Buddha is, um, after he wakes up, I don't want to say after he became enlightened, after the speech I just gave. <laughs> after he woke up and really became to understand the issue at hand and what it, what the mind does and how it works and how you can be free from the suffering of the mind, he's reflecting back again on his own experience. It's also another place where he's kind of having an internal dialogue. And he uh, is... Realizing that he he's trying to figure out how did I get here? How did this happen? What were the steps that I took? What was the uh, trail of bread crumbs that I followed to get to this experience? And he goes all the way back in his mind and he searches. He goes, and, he, and the first thing that arises for him is he says, "I thought that I could." The reason I was able to wake up was because at some point, somewhere along the way. I had the notion that there was a possibility that I could overcome. I could overcome the challenge. And so the, what I want to speak more about here is the teachings of the five spiritual faculties. And this is where, uh, as you know you're probably starting to notice in, in the Dharma there's many lists. And this is one of a very, a very helpful list because it says that these five faculties they merge in the deathless, and they bring us into an experience that doesn't die, that doesn't end, that we can just rest into. This, this present time experience. (coughs) And so, you know, I also love this term, the deathless. Because it's pointing to that there's something here that doesn't die. There's something that doesn't born doesn't get born, it doesn't die, it doesn't arise, it doesn't pass away. There's something about the dharma, there's something about the experience of having a mind that there's a steadiness quality to it. There's something that you can arrive into that is secure. And so he reflects and he says, I, I thought that I could do it. And like I said earlier, if we look at our life and we look at our experience and anything that you have ever done that was important to you that you feel good about, that you succeeded at it started because you had the thought or the inclination that you could do it. And so there's this really this confidence, this inner emotion, possibility in the mind that has been probably one of your greatest allies and one of your greatest assets. And I know that for me, when I reflect on my experience and I really sit with myself and I really try to consider what is it that's most valuable to me and what is it that feels most stable or what is it that I feel most beautiful experience to me. And I can't really think of an experience that I enjoy more or that I value more than moments in my life where I feel confident. If I feel confident, I make good choices. I can set boundaries with people. I can stand up for myself. I feel worthy. That on an emotional level, the experience of confidence and trust is really... I don't know if it has appeared to me. It feels so important, and I don't really feel like we uh, consider that so much, so I kind of encourage you to, as you go through the rest of the time here, as you consider some of this, to really try to bring some mindfulness to the experience of confidence, where you feel uh, like there's a sense of, oh, I could maybe do this. And so he said, I had faith, I had confidence that I could do it. And then he says, the next thing that I did was I tried, I put in effort. Which is the next spiritual faculty that is another thing that's a, a possibility of a, of a willingness, an effort to do something. Also the effort is, is also considered part of the Eightfold Path. It's one of the factors in the Eightfold Path. That we, we try we, we become diligent. We work towards. We, and you've been putting in the amount of right effort that was, has been generated here in the last several days, if we could bottle it and sell it. So much effort. right? So much effort to train the mind. It's like trying to train a wild horse. It's just all over the place. The monkey mind, as it's often called. And so we we, we and so you're sitting in here day after day and sit after sit training and training and sometimes it feels like there's not enough effort or not the right kind of effort. Right? But you're trying, you're putting it in, you're inclining your mind towards this possibility. And then the effort to let go sometimes feels excruciating, doesn't it? It's like I just can't unhook. But all the karma that gets generated, and all of the uh, benefits that are going to actually transpire over the rest of your life as a result of all this effort, and you will you will see. And so, from this confidence in this effort, really, the next thing that arises, the next spiritual faculty is the experience of mindfulness. Right? you 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 thought you could do it. You trusted there was maybe a possibility here. You put in the effort, and then you start to have these moments of mindfulness, of being aware of what's happening, being able to look at the mind. Some of you have been reporting that all day. I'm like, I, in a lot of it, is feeling upset to some degree. Like, I really see my mind now, and wow. What a shit show. <laughs> it's like, I can't even believe what this thing does. And right, So this is, uh, mindfulness is, is what allows us to balance everything together. And it does, it, you, there's no, without any faith or effort, there is no mindfulness. Mindfulness doesn't just, you know, once in a while it might just snap on by itself, but usually we have to, we got to stoke the fire, we have to prime the pump, we have to do something to get the mindfulness to come in. And the Buddha is saying very clearly here that, First of all, there has to be a sense of a possibility that I, I could be mindful. I put the effort in, I get my attention back to my breath, I do all these difficult tasks that I've been offering you all week, and then, poof, mindfulness starts to happen. And from mindfulness, now the mind is being trained. When mindfulness is present, now you're learning. You're just Mindfulness, to me, is to some degree a very... It's a pretty, at times, you know, upsetting and challenging, but it's very much a learning experience. When mindfulness is present, you are learning a lot about your mind. You're getting a crash course in your mind 101, and then eventually you you have a PhD in suffering, and then you have a PhD in craving, and then you get to get a PhD in liberation. And so as we learn, we start to learn how the thing works and the craving and all of the ways in which the mind is uh, getting us in kinds of all kinds of trouble. We start to develop the fourth faculty, which is that of, of concentration or right concentration. And we start to notice there are certain aspects of my experience that are more worthy of my attention. And so the concentration that it takes... Okay, let that go. That's a plan, that's a memory, that's a judgment. You start parsing it out now. Mindfulness allows you to go, not that, not that. Oh, I feel some forgiveness or I feel some kindness. Oh, stay oh that, stay with that. That's good. Do that. You know. I gotta check my Facebook. No, don't do that. <laughs> and so we're Developing this concentration, we're starting to understand that we actually have a lot of agency over what's happening. We we can pick and choose what we want to put our mind on. And one definition of faith that some teachers speak about, Sharon Salzburg talks about in her book. She has a book called Faith, which is one of my favorite Dharma books. She says, faith is what whatever I, is what we place our heart on. What do I place my heart on? And with mindfulness and concentration, we start to notice there's certain things that, that we can trust. Yeah, go with that. Put your That's okay to be with that. Be with that. If the appreciation and the gratitude that we did today starts to happen, that starts to be available. Stay with that. Concentrate on that. Focus on that. Be with that. And we start to just get to see that we have a lot of agency and we have a lot of um, freedom to choose where we are in the experience as the consciousness arises and arises and arises we start to get to see oh I can let that go I can let that go don't worry about that oh that's good, that's good I like the sound of this I can be with this I can be with my body I can be here Right. all these different possibilities that are available to us with mindfulness, we have the ability to choose. And we have the ability to concentrate, or to focus, or to be with, or to put our attention on. I'm going to stay with this. This seems like a worthy thing to be with. I'll take refuge in this for now. This is good enough. And then that renunciation again of being with the experience that's good enough. Right, to just sit in this room. And to be with my breath and to listen and to uh, be generous with my attention and to be with my experience is good enough. A renunciation of thinking. And the fifth faculty that arises out of this is wisdom. We just start to develop this mental faculty of wisdom which starts to actually show up Just like the faith shows up and it's a possibility. We want to know when it's present and when it's not. We want to know when the effort is there and when it's not. We want to know when the mindfulness is there and when it's not. When the focus and the concentration is there. And what arises out of these experiences is the experience of wisdom. Now we're starting to, to know and to understand which is the skillful thing to be with in this moment. And so these faculties, the reason why they, he says that they merge in the deathless is that as you cultivate them, and you've been cultivating them all week whether you know it or not because you've had experiences of all of these things, if you start to have more access to them, they start to become more available to you which is really actually what we want, is we want to be able to incline the mind towards the wisdom. And the way that they're laid out is that actually mindfulness is in the middle because it balances the other faculties out. Sometimes we can have too much faith, not enough wisdom, too much wisdom, not enough faith. And mindfulness is the the quality of mind that allows us to kind of uh, let that go, let that be... You can be with this, you can be with that. And so they're, they're, they're called support faculties because they support us on the meditative path. And they are part of the third noble truth. This, this is how the suffering gets ended, is being able to draw these qualities out. And then the Pali formula is defined renunciation as going against the stream, going against the forces of greed, hatred, and delusion. It is defined as an external renunciation for sensory clinging and an internal renunciation for abandoning craving, the former being a symbol for the latter. And so as we let go of this clinging and this craving for the stimulation and to become and to have and to get, we experience an internal renunciation. So again, it's a win-win. We let go of that grasping outward. We feel a coolness inward. The stream is essentially an image of craving rather than the object of craving. The inner renunciation is the conversion from the powerful grip of craving to the release of letting go, or abandoning that craving. Liberation is essentially the end of attachment, the end of participating in this process. In other words, the most important aspect of renunciation is renunciation itself, the very act of letting go. So when we look at the way that we crave, and so it's oftentimes object-related. So I want to have this, and I want to have that, and I want to get rid of this, and I want to get rid of that. And we start to let that part go. And then what happens is, of course, once we cool that down enough where it's like, okay, I can let go of all the places and the things I can become and get rid of. And then we start to sit with the you know, the, what he says, this craving is the stream itself, the stream of craving, the force of greed, hatred, and delusion. And once we start to break free from the objects that we're trying to go out and have and get rid of, now we're coming into this experience of actually going against the stream of craving itself. And so that starts to become deteriorated. And it's not so much about what can I have but how can I actually end the needing to have to begin with and that's renunciation the the most important aspect of renunciation is the renunciation itself is the cooling of that it's akin to the idea of a fire that has been put out And as I said last night, and I want to repeat this again because I don't think I made it so clear, is the, the difference here again between the desire and craving is again craving is not an expression of desire but rather a repression of our deeper desire to be free. And so we have this desire to be free. And the craving is not an expression of that, but it's actually a repression of that. And so the more that we sit and the more that we experience this cooling, this putting out, we start to see that we actually have some confidence that we can do this endeavor. And so we really want to find a way to come into our own experience of what does this confidence or what does this faith actually look like for me? And how can I learn to live into that as a possibility and start to really subtract out a lot of these items and a lot of these habits and a lot of these things that are actually getting in the way of that, that are getting in the way of my freedom. I know it's oftentimes easier said than done because for me over the years this has been probably one of the most Probably the single most challenging aspects of the practice for me is trying to stay true and trying to, um, trying to remember that this faith and this confidence is so important because been so much uh, influenced by the doubt and the fear. And also I feel like I, when it comes to craving, I feel sort of like a terminator. I feel like I, I, I crave harder than the average person. It's been a really difficult fire for me to put out. And, and I notice that the, the result of that is that when I give into it and, and I participate in it and I become confused by it, my desire for freedom gets really, really repressed. And then I become very, very convinced that, you know, like I said last night, that becoming a successful musician and playing in band, I start, to becoming, I start to become very convinced and I start to believe actually that what I need is out there and that the practice is just for shit and I really need to follow the plans and I need to become something and I, and I find that I, I am very oftentimes upset by how easily tricked by that I can be. And I think also as well, if you're practicing with mindfulness and reading and and studying, this is really a topic that is very much not talked about. And so one of the things that we can foster for ourselves is the more of this that you can encourage and the more of this you can bring out for yourself, it's going to have A very tremendous, I think a beautiful impact on the quality of not only your practice, but the quality of your life. Because whether you're practicing or filling out a job application or thinking about going back to school or thinking about getting rid of a career that you don't like to enter into another one, the only way you're going to be able to make any of those choices is by having some confidence. So all Buddhism aside and all Dharma practice aside, just on a very humanitarian level as a emotional, psychological tool or support faculty, anything that we can do to allow us to have access to this sense of confidence is really again as I said and I really strongly believe it it's really been my greatest ally and also it's been a very difficult ally to uh, at times to um, bring out it's also the antidote to the fear and the doubt and the confusion so I mostly encourage you as we move moving through the last few days here to look into your mind and to look into your heart and trying to see where that is for you, where that possibility is, where do you find that? How do you uncover that? How do you uh, get in touch with your own sense of possibility and, and, and faith and confidence that I, that I can do, there's a better way to do things. There's a better way to go about this life. And so this is what I have for you this evening. I appreciate your attention.